Good morning. And happy Father's Day to you fathers out there. I am a proud father of four daughters. I do. What was that? <laughs> That's right, four. Proud daughter. Prou- proud father of four daughters. Well, listen, good morning to you all. And um, it is truly a privilege to be here with you this morning. My name is Adam Mitchell, not to be mistaken for Adam Carter, your lead pastor. You can look at me and tell. There's a difference. He's just a little bit taller than I am and better looking. I have more of a beard than he does, though, so I've got that going for me. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Acts chapter 13. And we'll be in verses 1 through 3 this morning. There is the possibility that some of you recognize me, and you're maybe perhaps thinking, where do I know this small fellow from? Um, I presently work for Lifeway, uh, which is the publishing entity of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, and I work on the Broadman and Holman Academic uh, Division of Lifeway. That's what I do presently. I started that in March. Before that, I was the lead pastor of Warnell Road Baptist Church, which is where your present pastor, Adam Carter, served as an intern a few years ago, and so that's how Adam and I know one another, and you've also possibly, if you were here for the longest night, uh, that service that you guys have kind of picked up and run with the last couple of years, uh, I've been here for that and have offered up scripture reading and prayer during that time. So um, I know about you guys, and I want you to know that I believe you have a great pastor in Adam Carter. Um, I don't know, you may not know this, but Adam lives like directly across the street from me. So I walk out my front door and I see Adam's house. And so I keep an eye on him for you. <laughs> but listen, I am, I'm thankful for, for him. I'm thankful for, yes, the pastor that he is, but I'm also thankful that he's out on vacation this week. On Father's Day, he's being a good father to his boys. He's being a good husband to his wife. Because listen, pastors need breaks. They need vacations. They need the opportunity to get away and to be there for their families. And so, and I'm thankful for you in giving him the freedom to do that. Trust me, it is a blessing to him and his family to be able to do what they're doing this week. And it's a blessing for me to be here with you to preach God's Word this morning. As we look into Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, I know you guys are walking through the book of Acts in this this series, a community of faith. And it's beautiful to me uh, to have the opportunity to preach, but to look at this particular passage this morning. It's an astounding passage To me, have you ever asked the question of yourself in your own life or even in the life of of this church, Leewood Baptist, what is God doing? And not in and I don't even mean necessarily in a in a positive sort of way of we're expecting God to do great things, but I mean like we're kind of down and we're trying to figure out what's going on and we're going, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? Sometimes we end up clueless. We can fall into despair and hopelessness in life when we try to figure out sometimes what is God doing? Why can I not see His hand at work? We see it happening even in our own country. We're living right now in 2017 in the midst of cultural chaos over a multitude of social and moral issues. Political partisanship. Is, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I'm, I'm 39 years old, but at least in my lifetime, it's as extreme as I've ever seen it. Racial tension has now reached a steady boil 
and to have seemingly come so far, we still recognize that we still have so far to go. Those are just a few of the big problems. And right now, where traditionally Christians like you and me could feel at home in this culture as the so-called moral majority, we are now displaced. We're marginalized. We are sort of like strangers and aliens in a foreign land. It's almost like Scripture speaks of us in that way. And we see that becoming more and more pronounced in the very country that we live in. But are we not those who are waiting for a better country? And yet we find ourselves still here. In a broken world, in a fallen world. Now, those are big issues, right? I mean, those are, those are grand, large-scale issues that we can see going on in our country. But it happens on an individual level too, doesn't it? And day-to-day, the day-to-day grind of your life can just wear you out. And even on an individual level, you're going, God, where are you? What are you doing? Would you please come through and do something here? My wife and I and four daughters are moving back to Birmingham, Alabama. That's our hometown, where your pastor came from, actually. We're moving back to Birmingham, partially, and one of the main reasons, the main reason that I left pastoring Warnell Road Baptist Church is so we could move back to Birmingham, Alabama, to be near our families, as my, my, my dad has cancer, and my, uh, my father-in-law had a stroke last October, and we're just sensing the need to be closer in this time of their lives. And we don't want to leave. We love Kansas City. I loved pastoring that church. And it's been very difficult and very confusing as we go, God, what are you doing here? What is the point in all this? What is the meaning of all this? And we've had all kinds of trouble even trying to find a house in Birmingham. It can be confusing. It can be strange. It can leave you wondering what God is doing. Where is He in all of this, even last week, I was, I was going to have to send, this is, just a, this is just a little snippet of the kind of stuff. Not big, but just one of those things. It leaves you all confused and sometimes irritated and angry. I had to go, I was supposed to fax some papers to a lender for a loan. Because fax apparently is something that we still do in 2017. And I, had to get, I was having to go to the, uh, the Waldo Library on 75th to do this. And it was going to be, I mean, it's like a dollar a page. It was going to be 27 pages. And so I'm irritated at that. I've got to spend $27 to send a fax. And I get there, and all I have with me is a $20 bill. And so I'm irritated at that because now I have to leave the library to go get some more cash because cash is still a thing we do in 2017 as well. So i got to go get some cash. Well, then I come back, and I realize, I ask them at the desk, I'm like, so does this take this little machine, you know, you insert your money, like a vending machine, I'm like, does this take a $20 bill? And he's like, no. So I have to leave the library again, just to go somewhere to break a 20. So I finally get back, And I'm like stuffing $5 bills into this machine so I can send this fax. And I get to the end of it, type in all the stuff on the screen, hit fax. Has little dots that are rolling across the screen. And then it comes back and says, fax won't send. And I'm mad now. So there's nothing I can do. I spent almost two hours trying to send a $27 fax and I've done nothing. I've accomplished nothing. So I hit the button to get my money back. It doesn't spit out two $5 bills. I start hearing this sound. Tink! Tink! And I'm in the library, okay? What do you expect in a library? Shh! And I start hearing coins hit. And I'm like, 
So I reach in, I grab a couple of coins, and I realize these are not quarters. These are dimes. So it's spitting out $10 worth of dimes in the library. Tink, 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 100 times. And so I look up to go, who all is looking around? And everybody else is looking up because I'm making all kinds of noise in the library. So then I finally take a handful of dimes. I go put it down on the counter and go, can you please give me cash for this? I can't walk around with $10 worth of dimes. And I leave there and I go, God, we are trying to move back to Birmingham so that we can be closer to our family. We're trying to honor you. We're trying to honor our father and mother in their later years in life. Why won't this just work out? Why won't this just work out? God, what are you doing? Where are you in all of this? Lord, how is getting $10 worth of dimes spit out at me in the library possibly a part of your plan? You get it? I mean, just the the small things, right? Even that can lead us to ask really big questions. It's the small and the big of our lives that can lead to that. But I want us to see this morning from Acts chapter 13. I want us to see this. That God is always at work. He's always at work in and through His people, the church. We are His people. He is always at work in and through us. And He is calling us to walk faithfully with Him in worship, in prayer, and in mission. God is always at work in and through His people. And He is calling us to walk faithfully with Him in worship, in prayer, and in mission. As Pastor John Piper has said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. So let's read these verses. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And then we'll look into it together. It says, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Would you pray with me as we look into God's Word? Father, we come to You now and we are in need of You. Lord, we can experience so much confusion in our lives as we, even as we seek to do Your will, even as we seek to fulfill Your purposes for us, even as we seek to honor You, to glorify You, to worship You, we can still fall into confusion and even despair and irritability as a result of that, sometimes because we just can't tell, we can't see what You're doing. And so I pray, God that You would help us to see beyond our own circumstances, to know that You are always at work in us, that You intend good for us, and that You're calling us to walk faithfully with You. Lord, if there is any visitor or any, any lost person who is here today, we trust that by Your hand You have led them here this morning to hear your gospel, to hear the truth of who you are, to repent and trust in you. And so we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would convict the lost this morning and that you would encourage the hearts of the believers who are here. Lead us now as we look into your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the church at Antioch, in Acts chapter 13, we see the glorious work of God in His church and through His church. This glorious work is put on display, the church at Antioch. And as we look at these verses, just these three verses this morning, I want us to see in these verses three realities related to the plan of God and fulfilling His purposes through His people. 
Okay, so as we look, just as a roadmap here of what we're going to look at this morning, I want us to see these three realities that are related to the plan of God and fulfilling His purposes through His people. The first reality is this. God starts and establishes churches. We are called to faithfully preach the Gospel. Second thing is this, God strengthens and grows churches. We are responsible for making disciples and developing leaders. And the third thing is this, God sets apart and sends missionaries, and we are called to affirm and release them. Now, I had no idea that this was going to happen. We were singing How Firm a Foundation, and I looked right over there at those three banners. And I looked at those three banners, and I said, Those are the three points of the sermon today. Share Jesus, disciple believers, and reach the nations. We're called to preach the gospel. We're called to make disciples and develop leaders. And we're called to affirm and release missionaries to the nations. That's what we see in this text that we're looking at this morning. So first, the first reality... God starts and establishes churches. We, as the church, are called to preach the gospel. Read verse 1 with me again. It says this, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now I know you guys have been working your way through the book of Acts, but I want to ask this question. How did the church at Antioch come to be? How did it come to be? Where did it come from? How did it start? Why did it start? To answer this question, I want to backtrack a little bit. And just to give you a heads up, the first reality that we're talking about, the first point of this sermon is the longest point. So I don't want to get to the end of this point and you go, oh my gosh, we've got to do that two more times? <laughs> this is the longest one. It'll shrink up a little bit as we get to the second and third, but just so you'll know, so you don't freak out, this first one is the longest. But I want us to answer the question, how did the church at Antioch come to be? So we'll need to backtrack a little bit in the book of Acts to connect the dots that lead us to Antioch in Acts chapter 13. It's remarkable when you look at this, especially because of a name that we saw at the end of verse 1, and that name is Saul. If you go back to the end of Acts chapter 7, you have a young man, a deacon named Stephen, who preached this sermon, and he really made some people mad. And they begin, these these witnesses who are gathered against Stephen, begin to stone him. And what does it tell us at the end of Acts chapter 7? It says, those witnesses who were stoning Stephen laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then you go to Acts chapter 8, the beginning of it, and it says Saul agreed with putting him to death. Saul agreed with putting him to death. And it goes on to say, On that day a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women and put them in prison. That word ravaging, when it says Saul was ravaging the church, that word ravaging is a word that would be used of a wild animal such as a lion that rips and tears at the flesh of its prey. So, Saul ravaging, tearing and ripping at the church, trying to annihilate it, trying to do away with it completely. But look at what verse 4, what verse 4 in chapter 8 says is this. So those who were scattered, I mean, can't you picture this? Like a, a wolf coming into like a herd of sheep or something and you scatter everywhere. Verse 4, those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. You see that? Those who were scattered went on their way preaching the Word. 
Now, I don't know if they were feeling sorry for themselves or not. I don't know. I mean, we don't get the full picture. But what we do see is faithfulness in preaching the Word of God, even though they were experiencing extremely difficult situations and circumstances, right? They went on their way preaching the Word. So in chapter 8, the rest of chapter 8, Luke focuses in on Philip. So he preaches in Samaria, then, he, then the Ethiopian eunuch, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And then Peter going to the Gentiles in chapter 10 and for the first half of chapter 11. But then he picks up, Luke picks up with a different storyline about halfway through Acts chapter 11 in verse 19. And he says this. He kind of picks up where he left off in Acts chapter 8. Just at a different geographical location now and with different people. He says, now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen, which is directly related to whom? Saul. Because of Stephen, made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and where? Antioch. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent who? Barnabas. To travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large number of people, large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Isn't that amazing? That in Acts 8, the end of Acts 7, you have Saul at whose feet garments were being thrown as a Christian, was being killed, was being stoned. Saul agreed to this, and then he ravages the church. He seeks like a wild animal to tear it apart, to destroy it. And yet in Acts 11, those who had been scattered as a result of that persecution go preach the gospel, and they reach Antioch. They reach as far as Antioch, and multitudes are added to the Lord. You see that so many times in the book of Acts. The multitudes were added to the Lord. In the meantime, what has happened to our ravaging persecutor named Saul? In Acts chapter 9, what does he do? He seeks to go to Damascus to persecute believers. To those who are following the way, he wants to take them back to Jerusalem. He wants to throw them in jail, and I'm assuming aiming for capital punishment for them. But what happens on his way to Damascus? The Lord Jesus reveals himself to Saul, saves him. So instead of going to Damascus to persecute believers, he goes to Damascus to preach the gospel. There are those who rise up against him in Damascus to kill him, so he flees, he goes back to Jerusalem. What's interesting about this, he goes back to Jerusalem. The disciples there don't believe it, do they? They don't believe that Saul has truly been converted, that he's truly a believer. But who comes to his defense? Barnabas. Barnabas says, yes, he is a true believer. So he teaches in Jerusalem. Then there are those in Jerusalem who rise up to kill him. So they send him off to his hometown, Tarsus. And then we find, again, going back to Acts 11, we find Barnabas in Antioch. He sees them that they're truly converted, that there are large numbers who have turned to the Lord. He saw the grace of God. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord. Then in verse 25, chapter 11, it says, Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Is this not unbelievable? What an amazing story. What an amazing thing that has happened that the Lord has done. How, how God has established, has started and established a church in Antioch. And He does it through persecution. They went to Antioch because they were being persecuted. But what did they do all the way? They preached the gospel. 
Those who were scattered preached the gospel. Do you see? God is the one who starts and establishes churches. We are called to be faithful in preaching the gospel. This is such a beautiful thing to see that Saul was the one. He was the reason that they left Jerusalem in the first place because he was ravaging the church. They, the church goes all the way. It's begun in Antioch. And then later on, you find this guy who was a persecutor of the church, now a Christian, actually a leader in this church that started because he was the one persecuting the church in Jerusalem. So beautiful and, and yet just mysterious how this all came about. Saul is now a pastor. He's not a persecutor anymore. This reminds me of a hymn by an old Puritan named William Cooper. Just listen to the words of this. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter and He will make it plain. The only explanation for how the church in Antioch came to be is that God started it and yet He used a persecutor. And then he later called that persecutor to follow him to become a pastor and to pastor that church that started because of the evil that he had done in the past. That's a good work of God. God is the one who starts and establishes churches and we are called to preach the gospel, share Jesus, and trust God for the outcome of that. Secondly, we'll see this, that God strengthens and grows churches. We are responsible for making disciples and developing leaders. It says again, second half of verse 1, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Remember what we just read from Acts 11 about Barnabas and Saul and Antioch? What had they done? What were they doing there? It says, For a whole year they met with the church and taught large numbers. And what we find in Acts chapter 13 is now you have three more leaders who have been developed out of that group. Three more leaders. This is the prophets, teachers, leaders in this church. This is God's provision for the church. This is how God takes care of His church. It's how He grows. It's how He strengthens the church. And this indicates a church with an eternal mindset. That it's not built around one or two people. This is a church that looks beyond just the present pastor. They have an eternal mindset. I read an article recently about the persecuted church around the world, Iran, in Iran, for example. It talks about how they did, how they, how they developed leaders in the church. And that they understand the necessity of having more than one leader in the church. More than one pastor in the church. Can you imagine why they would see it as important? Aside from the fact that it's a scriptural principle that there's more than one leader in the church. Can you imagine why though? Why would they see it as practically important to have more than one leader in the church? They have no idea how long they're going to live. Right? They have no idea how long they're going to live. Now that is, that's like an everyday reality for them. It's unlikely that we're going to walk out of this building here 
in Leewood on State Line Road and die because of our faith. It's highly unlikely that that's going to happen. Yet what you still see, and what we're still called to, every one of us, is an eternal mindset. That we're not just to be stuck in this comfort level of going, I'm good. I'm set. Look, you're a pastor, and I don't want to be morbid here, because your pastor is a good friend of mine, and I, I want him to live for a really, really long time. But there's not a single one of us who are guaranteed the next breath. Right? You need to be a church. You need to be a Christian. I need to be a Christian who has an eternal mindset. Who looks for the sake of the church and for the sake of the gospel in the area in which you live that I look 40 years down the road and go, how does Leewood still exist 40 years from now? How does it still, still exist 100 years from now? When all of us are gone, how will there still be a Leewood Baptist? What you see here is God taking care of the church by giving them multiple leaders. Qualified men who are able to lead and shepherd and pastor and teach this church. That's how you can grasp and understand and gain longevity as a church. It's an eternal mindset. But I want you to notice one other thing about this. Every one of these men come from a different cultural background. Every single one of them come from a different cultural background. You have Barnabas, which Acts chapter 4 tells us that he is a Levite. He's a Jew from Cyprus, from an island that's to the west of Antioch. It's his homeland, if you will. Barnabas. And you have Simeon, likely from North Africa. His nickname is the Latin word for black. He's a dark-skinned man. He's dark-skinned. That's, that's what it's telling us. That's his nickname. They called him Niger. Likely an African man. You have Lucius, who's from Cyrene. Not Antioch, but Cyrene. You have Menaean. It says he's a, he was a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That word there for close friend is also a word that would be used of like a foster brother or a stepbrother or something like that, which is, it likely means that he was like brought into Herod's household and raised with him. This guy was a social elite. He had a place in society. He's probably wealthy. Then you have Saul, a former Pharisee, a religious elite. All of these guys, all of them are different. And that tells us, for you and for me, we need to be pursuing racial and cultural diversity within the church. Not just for the sake of diversity. Not just so we can say, hey... We have people that look different who meet here and worship, not just for the sake of that, but as a display of the gospel, as a display of the kingdom of God. I'm thankful for the Southern Baptist Convention that just met this past week and passed a resolution about racism and denouncing racism. And, and a certain group, you may have heard of them, I don't know, the alt-right but they, this resolution, in part, says this, Racism and white supremacy are sadly not extinct, but present all over the world in various white supremacist movements, sometimes known as white nationalism or alt-right. The messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention decry every form of racism, including alt-right white supremacy. As antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we denounce and repudiate white supremacy in every form of racial and ethnic hatred as of the devil. That's a good thing. And we should stand with that, denouncing all forms of racism. All forms of it. Why? I'll just say, I'll just say it this way. If you are, call yourself a Christian and you don't like people of other colors, 
or of other cultures, especially those of the household of faith, those who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't know how you won't hate heaven. Right? I don't know how you won't hate eternity in the kingdom of God. Why? Because Revelation tells us that gathered around the throne are people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Jesus has told us in the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, all ethnicities, which is going to mean all colors, all cultures. And what the Gospel does in calling us to Christ is it undoes, it undoes all of the racism, all of the prejudice. It levels the ground for all men, for all mankind, for all people everywhere. It undoes all of that racism. And you see it evidenced here. You see, because this is the Great Commission, even as you look through the book of Acts, becoming more and more developed as they reach outside. Remember what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. Basically the thesis statement for the book of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You're going everywhere. The gospel's going everywhere. And we see that evidenced here with the leadership at the church at Antioch. And we need to pursue that as well. We must pursue that. You do that. One of, one of the ways in which you serve our city so well is the longest night. And it's sad. I mean, it's sad to me to see, and I don't know if you've paid attention to it at this point in the year, but the murders in Kansas City are outpacing this year what was last year. And last year was 128. We're ahead of that pace right now. And that longest night service is a way in which we serve the entirety of our city. The entirety of our city. Not just those that look like us, but the entirety of our city. And you need to continue, let me encourage you to continue to be about that. You've done so well with that. Continue to be about that. So we see three realities. God starts and establishes churches and we are called to preach the gospel. God strengthens and He grows churches and we are called to make disciples and develop leaders. And then thirdly and finally, God sets apart and sends missionaries. We are called to affirm and release them. Verses 2 and 3 say this, As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. You see here what happens? The Spirit of God speaks in the context of corporate worship. They're together, a community of faith, worshiping. Now that's not to say that the Spirit only speaks in the context of corporate worship, but one obvious benefit of corporate worship for you and for me, which and you don't understand what I'm saying here, us being together like right now. One of the great benefits of that, the obvious benefit of corporate worship and prayer is that those are times in which we come together to tune our hearts to what the Lord is saying. That's what we're doing today. We're tuning our, our hearts, we're tuning in to what the Lord is saying, to what the Lord is doing. Remember those questions that we ask, Lord, what are you up to? What are you up to? Well, corporate worship and corporate prayer is a time in which we're tuning into that and that we see from His Word what he is doing. And in a sense, you could say that worship and prayer are a sign of knowing our place and knowing God's place. Our place is a place of humility, of worship, of bowing before King Jesus, of exalting him, not ourselves, of humbling ourselves, as John the Baptist would say, decreasing so that he might increase. It's knowing our place. That's what worship and prayer do for us. We know our place, but we also know God's place. But it's in this position of humility 
in worship and prayer that we are most prepared to hear, receive, and to act on God's Word. Why? Because we're not being prideful. We're not looking at a situation and going, I can handle this myself. No, we're bowing before the Lord and going, God, I can't handle this, but you can. Is that not what so much of our prayer requests are? Of our intercession? Of our asking God to move and to act? That's so much of what it is. It's us going before Him humbly and going, I can't do this. I can't make this happen. I need you to act and to move on my behalf. Do you think that God is not delighted in that? To hear the, the, the humble prayers of His people and to move and to act on our behalf? What do we see in these verses? What is the Lord telling the church? What does He tell them? Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Set them apart. But they're leaders. They're important. They've been there for a year teaching large numbers. Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. What does the church do? What do they do? This is so beautiful. They fast and they pray. They lay their hands on them, which does not confer any sort of blessing to them. It's just them saying, putting their hands on them and saying, we agree and we're with you we support this we believe that this is what the Lord is saying this is what the Lord is doing it's an affirmation and then it says what, and then what do they do they send them off now this is a word that has more of a passive meaning than it does an active meaning that they're not the ones doing the sending who's the one doing the sending The Spirit. The Spirit's the one who says, set them apart for the work to which I've called them. This word, when it says, sent them off, could literally mean this. They released them. They set them free. They laid their hands on them and they set them free. They said, we know that we can't grip you too tightly. As much as we love you, as much as we love your teaching, as much as we believe... That what you have done has been good and God glorifying the Lord is calling you out and so we release you. We set you free. We can't hold too tightly even to one another. We have to be ready for the Lord to send. But what's so cool about this is this is not devastating to the church and you want to know why? Because of reality number two, that God grows and strengthens the church and we are called to make disciples and develop leaders. They've done that, haven't they? So even if Paul, Saul, and Barnabas leave, they still have three who are left to continue teaching and leading the church, don't they? That is God's provision. It's the way God takes care of His church. I think about it this way. My daughters, my t- well, my two older daughters, 13 and 10, they've been playing volleyball um, this past year at the Y. And they don't, it's new to them, so they don't totally know what they're doing. They're still trying to figure it out. But one of the common things that, I don't know of a sport that doesn't practice this, um, but I played baseball and football growing up. Um, and they're playing volleyball now, and one of the things that's important, and, and maybe it's a cliche in sports now, but we tell people, we say, and I tell my daughters this as they're, as they're out there playing, I'm like, be on your toes. What am I telling them? Why, do I, why would you say something like that? Why would you tell a baseball player, be on your toes? Why would you tell a football player, be on your toes? A volleyball player, be on your toes. Why? Because if you're on your toes, you're ready to do what? You're ready to move. You're ready to get in position. You're ready to get to where you're supposed to be so that you can help your team. And so I say that to you as a church. Be on your toes. Be ready. Don't be flat-footed. 
There is no reason for you to wait on mission to happen. Be on your toes and be ready to move because God is working in Kansas City and He's working in and through you. I know it. I've seen it. I've experienced it myself. I know that God is working through you. Don't be passive about missions. Get on your toes and be ready to move. Be ready. God sets apart and sends missionaries. And we are called to affirm and to release them, to set them free. It's such a beautiful picture with this convergence of both God's power and His sovereignty and that He's called us to work with Him. He's called us to be a part of what He's doing. He's the one who starts and establishes churches. And we're called, no matter the circumstance, remember it was persecution for them. We're called to preach the gospel. God is the one who grows and strengthens churches and He's called us to make disciples and to develop leaders. And God is the one who sets apart and sends missionaries. And we as the church are the ones who are called to affirm them and to release them. And so what do we do with this? Just some points of application here. Be faithful. Be faithful to the Word of God. Look at what this Word says. Read it, study it, know it, memorize it, meditate on it, and then act accordingly. Be obedient to it. Be obedient to it. Continue. Pursue diversity. And again, this is not for the sake of diversity, but as an image, as an, as an illustration, as a picture to the world of the kingdom of God, of what life is like in God's kingdom. Seek that out. Pray for it. Thirdly, be together. Be together. That's simple enough, right? Be together, which means be consistent in Sunday morning worship. And you go, ah, yeah, but, you know, it's okay if I miss every once in a while. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you're sinning. I'm not calling your pastor a sinner for being out on vacation this week. But be consistent in your worship with one another. Why? Because, again, this is where we tune in to hear what God is doing, to hear what He's saying to us. And this is one of, Sunday morning is one of the most peculiar times, one of the most peculiar things that people would ever do. Why? Because when you gather for Sunday morning worship, you are proclaiming to the world that Jesus is alive. That's what you're telling the world. It means so much to you that you're here with fellow brothers and sisters, with fellow believers, worshiping and exalting Jesus. And be, again, moving on, next thing. So be together. Be ready to release those among you as the Spirit leads. Be ready to release. Be ready to set free those who would reach the nations. Those who would go out from among you as the Spirit leads. Be ready to set them free. Don't hold too tightly to them. And finally this, trust that God always intends good for His children. This may mean looking beyond present circumstances, but listen to me, Leewood Baptist, and all of you individuals who make up this church, you are loved by God. Loved by Him. So much that He sent His Son to die, to take our place, to take our sin off of us, to put His righteousness on us. You are loved. You will never be more loved than you are by our God, by our Creator. You are loved. So you can trust that God always intends good for you. And understand, this is Jesus' continued work. Remember in Acts chapter 1, Luke tells Theophilus, the man to whom he's writing, that in my, my first letter, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach, insinuating that what I'm about to write to you is what Jesus continues to do and teach. And yet in the Gospel of Luke, what do we find? 
we find Jesus offering Himself as a sacrifice for sin. As a sacrifice for sin. If you're visiting with us this morning, if you're a lost person, you've never put your trust in Jesus, God has led you here this morning so that you might hear the gospel. What Jesus began to do was He lived a perfect, sinless life and He died on the cross to take the place of sinners, to die the death that you and I deserved. So that for all who repent, for all who will see their sin for what it is, turn from it and put their trust in Christ, He will save you. He will save you. He will forgive you. He will bring you into His family, into His kingdom. If you will trust in Him. So church, Augustine, thousands of years ago, he said this. As we, as we ponder questions of, in difficult days of God, where are you? What are you doing? What's going on here? How are you at work? How do we get in on this work? God, what are you doing? Augustine says, trust the past to God's mercy, that you are covered, that you are forgiven. The present to God's love and the future to God's providence. He will lead you. He is leading you and He will continue to lead you, church. He is always at work in and through you. And He's calling you to walk faithfully with Him in worship and prayer and on mission. Would you pray with me now? Father, we come to You and we are grateful for Your work in our lives and we just... We are a people in need of You. And Lord, we can look at the circumstances of our lives. We can look at the circumstances of the church in Antioch and how it began. And see Your sweet providential hand at work to see the Gospel go to the nations. Lord, as You started that church out of persecution and then called its persecutor to be its pastor and then called this church to send that same one to the nations. Lord, You are good and You are trustworthy. So help us to be mindful of that. Help us to dwell on that. Help us to trust You. Help us to follow You. Help us, God, to lay down to repent of the prejudices that we have. Help us to re- repent of those and to pursue diversity, to love others who aren't like us for the sake of the gospel. Help us in that, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.